Welcome to the I-29 MUU Dairy Podcast. I-29 MUU University is a consortium of land-grant universities in Minnesota, Iowa, South Dakota, and Nebraska. This podcast covers timely news, information, and research for today's dairy industry. On this podcast episode, we will discuss fly strategies for fly control. I'm Fred Hall, the Iowa State University Extension Dairy Specialist in Northwest Iowa. I'm joined by Jim Salfer, Minnesota Extension Dairy Specialist. Jim, welcome back to the I-29 Moo University Dairy Podcast. Well, welcome, Fred, and I also like to welcome Roger, and I appreciate being a part of this. And I think it's really a timely topic here as we kind of roll into spring. Our guest for today's episode is Dr. Roger Moon. Uh, He's retired from University of Minnesota Entomology Department after 36 years of service and research, teaching and outreach in veterinary entomology. He continues to be active in the academic circles and, and publish on biology and ecology and management of filth flies. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Moon. Thanks, Fred, and thanks, Jim. I'm glad to be here. Dr. Moon, during the webinar earlier in March, you identified fly species that are real problems on the dairy. Can you give us an overview of them now? It's easy to think of them as two groups. If you have cows on grass of any age, they're leaving the sacred meadow muffins out there. And in turn, those dung pats are the source of the two kinds of flies that are really common where there's pasture around. They're called face fly, which are big, and you can see them on the animals' faces, or horn flies, which are smaller, and they sort of cloud up on the withers of the animals. They really live on the bodies of the cattle. So if an operation has some grazing cattle somewhere or a neighbor who's grazing, then those flies are likely to be present. On the other hand, dry lot managed, scrape and haul kinds of of animal housing for traditional or conventional dairies, uh, they don't have those flies because they don't have pastures. But they have flies that affect the animal's behavior, and those would be stable flies, which bite on the legs, and uh, house flies, which bother people and the neighbors. So there's two and two. There's a biter on each side of the fence, and there's a, a nuisance fly on each side of the fence. So, Roger, how important is cleanliness and hygiene in these controlling flies? Or do you want to talk a little bit about kind of overall? Let's focus right on confinement right now. So stable and house flies. A couple of parts. How do we know if we have them (laughs) and if they're an issue and what's the difference between a house fly and a stable fly as far as animals are concerned? And then, you know, how do we control those buggers? Okay. Cleanliness and hygiene. Uh, I prefer to use sanitation. If, If you're a real estate agent, it's location, location, location. If you're trying to control confinement flies, house fly and stable fly, it's sanitation. Now, this is not, you know, spraying antibiotics around to control bacteria. This is scraping the solids and either getting them wet into the lagoon or spreading them on the ground so that they're thin and anything in there can't develop. So sanitation is really should be the backbone of a place's uh, fly pest management program. Sanitation, sanitation, sanitation. What type of material do they grow in? I mean, is it the sloppy manure in the alleyways? Is it to dry up piles of bedding? Where do these uh, stable flies and house flies, where do they breed? And what type of debris or should you be looking for to making sure it's not lying around? These insects are actually uh, feeding on the bacteria that are growing on plant fibers in the organic debris that's around our confined animals. 
So an animal defecates, urinates, that creates a relatively wet habitat and flies don't do much in that. On the other hand, if you mix it with bedding or let it age for a while and lose its moisture content, it gets into what I call a sweet spot of maggot heaven. If it's totally dry and crumbly out on the pasture, it doesn't breed flies. A whole rainstorm can come and it's not gonna rehydrate that stuff and make it suitable for these flies. On the other hand, there's in the middle where the moisture content is right, usually about between 40 and 60%. Grab a handful and squeeze it. And if the gravy runs down to your elbow, <laughs> you know, <laughs> breed flies. Anyways, and, and that's actually the key to figure out where they're coming from on your, on your premise. I talk about sanitation. What I really mean is targeted. Looking for the places where the maggots are, and it's easy to see them at arm's length, and in turn, changing that habitat by changing the bedding material or scraping and spreading or whatever you can do to get it dry or too wet to prevent flies from coming out. They're going to come out in a month. If you create it, they'll come. Pile the manure and pile the feed and flies will find it as soon as it warms up. When you start looking for them, uh, when you can get out when the snow's melted, you won't find anything at that time, but expect them to build month by month. So by the time you're in July, you could easily find sources of flies and that you should have cleaned up in, in May and June. So take notes and carry them over to next year. So in your webinar, you called it scouting for flies. Just yeah. what does that mean? There was an old boy at, at the University of Nebraska Lincoln, and I did a postdoc there back in the early 80s. And he had an IPM program for beef cattle feedlots. And he developed the idea, which is common in pest management generally, is that you don't just react with a calendar and say, it's time to spray again. No, you scout your premise to figure out if you have a problem to prevent on the front end and in turn invoke prevention methods, that sanitation stuff that I was talking about. So to answer your question, Fred, it's, it's really crude. You're not counting, you're looking for spots where they're active or not. And all it takes is a little garden trowel. Gloves are optional, right? But you can trowel around in this material and if you can find maggots breeding, uh, and in our webinar, I think I had a couple of videos showing what they look like. It's pretty easy to find them, but you have to get out of the truck. You can't do it from the road. You've got to pick around and guide where breeding material could be, which is animal bedding mixed with manure, maybe a, a rotting feed or hay leftovers, and uh, certainly uh, hay rings coming through winter. All of those materials are candidate places where maggots can come from. Your job is to find them and get at them before they take over your place. So my neighbor's got hay rings, feeds out some calves. Uh, he's a 300 foot from my property line, 500 foot, 600 foot from my dairy. Can flies travel that far? Easily. Go buy the guy a beer and talk about how your cows are being bothered by his flies. These things can travel uh, a half a mile easily. And, and you can think of animals, stable flies in particular. These are blood-sucking insects. And their whole game is to find sources of blood and to make eggs out of it. That's what they're doing. So if you, your animals are sitting on a vacant landscape, but the flies are emerging somewhere else, think of filings coming to a magnet on the table. That's what the flies are doing for your livestock. And so uh, really, uh, Campbell, way back in the, in the 1970s and 80s, uh, was talking about regional management. And what he was doing was trying to get people to think about the landscape bigger than my backyard. So yeah, they can easily travel over the fence. Uh, I'll give you a quarter of a mile. 
And uh, you should send him some of our brochures about how to disrupt fly breeding. <laughs> hey, Jim, let's uh, run down a list just when we've got the fly expert here. I'm going to start off saying, you know, these old H-type feed bunks where you get the stuff underneath and alongside. That'd be my first place. I'm going to take a trowel. That's where I'm going to look. How about you, Jim? Yeah, and I think a lot of these these open front barns where there's gates in the middle, I think if it's really not sloppy manure, but bedding goes in there. So I think of these areas, as Roger was talking, kind of where there's a bedding barrier in these bedded pack barns and the edge of the barn, or there's a gate, something like that, where, you know, as Roger mentioned, it's kind of this, this borderline between really sloppy manure that maybe gets walked on a regular basis and maybe the dry dirt. Is that kind of what you're saying, Roger? Look, that's really where you should be looking uh, for your flies. Not so much in a freestall alley. I mean, not that you shouldn't keep that cleaned up, but it's more of these borders. And do you want to comment on lagoons too? How do we deal with the lagoons when you've got some of those areas automatically and it's maybe not that easy to clean those out? Yeah, uh, it's not possible to get 100% control, but 90% control is pretty damn good. And you can do that. Fred, your feed bunks, get them up higher and be able to clean them out once in a while. Send a kid out there with a pitchfork or something. You can modify the environment so that that debris doesn't collect or less of it does. Same with the, the edge of the bedding pack and along the fence line. We've known for a long time. If you want to go collect flies, you dig along the fence line. That's where you're going to find them. So you've got that gradient between wet on the one hand and dry on the other. And that, that's, that, that's a recipe for MAGA heaven. They'll be in there somewhere count on it. So as, as managers, you can maybe modify your operation so that you minimize the amount of that debris that builds up. So I've got the silage pile. Obviously mm. it's moist, but you know, right where the cement ends, the tractor ruts, they always have water in them and mm -hmm. I just move it around when I'm putting silage into the mixer wagon. How about that silage pile? Is that an issue? Um, I, I, I think of that as the gravy. And it may, it may be for houseflies. Rarely is it for stableflies, unless the moisture conditions are just right. Both of these insects really like manure-contaminated uh, plant debris. Manure and urine are mixed in there. Rain will substitute for the urine and create some moisture. And sometimes you can get enough bacterial growth around the margins. A simple solution is just to get a front-end loader and scoop that stuff up on, back up on the top. Try to keep up with the, uh, the oozing that's happening in the piles locally. And, and Jim, you asked about newer lagoons. Uh, if, you, if you go in, a, get yourself in a helicopter, look down on the place, you can draw a direction, a line around the margin of the manure lagoon. The skinnier that line, the less breeding material there is. If the slopes are steep, you'll get the least. So Fred, you can put your, your, your silage pile up against concrete bunkers and, and that will minimize the amount of that seepage that occurs around the edges. Same with the manure lagoon. When you clean it out, scrape the edges if you can to make it as steep as possible to try to minimize the amount of that margin where, where that maggot heaven is going to show up. So, Roger, how can you tell if you've got too many flies? It sounds like stable flies are the ch real challenge for cows. Yeah. It's what they like the least. So how oh, I'm, I'm out there in a barn and how do I know if they're really what, what can I be looking for? Reverend Moon here keeps preaching two things. <laughs> Pay attention, eyes on the landscape. Watch your animals, in your case, to see if they're bothered. What, how do you know they're bothered? They bunch. Heads together, butts out, tails switching, 
leg stomping, they're, they're milling around to get the central position. This is an innate behavior that, that large ruminants uh, display when they're bothered by biting flies of any kind. Around confinement operations, it's gonna be stable fly. Dime will get you a dollar that's gonna be stable fly bothering them. And you can see them perching on the legs and, and that, that's what stimulates the leg stomping and the tail switching and junk. So that's how you could have, that's how you could tell if, if they're being bothered by flies. And, I, and, I, and I, I, it's a difficult thing to study and quantify. People have related uh, the number of stomps per minute or the number of flank twitches per minute uh, and so forth to reductions in milk production. And I think that's kind of the bottom line for a dairy producer is that these flies, they're, they're, they're stealing the guy's pocketbook. You know, the, cow, the cows are producing milk, uh, but they're wasting energy uh, to do it. And then that's, that's cutting down on the feed that they've fed those animals. Trawling for maggots, figure out where they're coming from if you know you've got a problem, but start with the animal's behavior. Are you kind of too late when you do that? Should you, I mean, when you look for that behavior, is it sort of like, well, next year I need to do something different from a preventative standpoint? You're good, Jim. That's unfortunately the way it goes. Unless they read our documents and listen to our podcast and anticipate that flies are going to come this summer. It can be bad or worse from one year to the next, uh, depending on the weather, but they will eventually show up and the cattle will probably go six weeks to three months of misery. And so, yeah, if you're starting from, from square zero, watch your animals now and keep, keep track of how much time they're bunching and when. And in turn, think strategically over winter and the coming spring next year uh, to how you can keep keep those flies from building up to the annoying levels. Yeah. So I'm kind of, you know, I get behind. So now what do I do? You had talked a lot about prevention, but now you see all these different control procedures. You've got wasps out there. You've got spraying. Now I've got flies. What do I do? Where do wasps fit in? Where does spraying fit in? Help us understand how to use these other techniques to control flies once I have them. Good. The villain is stable fly, and you want to kill it. How do you do it once they're out as adults? We haven't talked about flies 101, but adult flies come from maggots. When they feed, then they get off the animal and they perch on something solid. Fence lines, uh, barn walls, over rafters. And if you've got an open ventilated barn, uh, there's a lot of flies that are perching up at night above. So you want to put a residual insecticide on those surfaces to kill the flies that land. This is an emergency reaction now, but nevertheless, the animal's misery dictates it. So we're talking about residual sprays. That's what you want to use. And the two main ingredients, categories of them are organophosphates, less so, but more so pyrethroids. Those compounds, if you've got cows being really bothered and you're able to intervene, you want to do a premise spray. Oh, about the kid that's, that's walking around with a pitchfork? <laughs> Put that kid on a lawnmower and chop all the weeds within uh, maybe uh, 50 yards of the barns. That's going to force the flies to concentrate. Instead of playing out in the vegetation, they're going to be in the buildings, and that's going to increase your kill. At that point, if you've got an outbreak of flies, uh, the uh, parasitic wasps, non-stinging parasitic wasps, uh, those guys, uh, they're way too late. You can't release enough of them. And you've already got adults out there. So you got to concentrate on the problematic lives. Feed additives. People are feeding that material in calf supplements. Calf hutches are big, but they're not entirely where these flies are coming from. And again, those are getting next month's flies, not this month's adults. 
So I, I would encourage people to go with an adulticide of some kind, an insecticide. And uh, on our, uh, our webinar, I, I gave you guys a link to the uh, VetInt uh, website, and you can go shopping for products and, and, and talk with the vendors. There's, there's lots of vendors that are out there willing to sell you stuff. You just have it, you take, take control as a consumer uh, and do something sensible. Pick the right material. We want to take this opportunity to thank our major sponsors, DTE Biomass Energy. DTE Biomass Energy partners with dairy farmers across the country to produce marketable renewable energy by extracting and utilizing digester gas. For more information, you can visit their website, newlook.dteenergy.com. So if I'm understanding, once we've got overwhelmed and the cattle are suffering, it's kind of, we do have sprays available, but our first strategy needs to be sanitation. And that includes, and and this is something until we had the webinar, I guess I didn't think about keeping the place mowed up, you know, Mm -hmm. making sure that uh, that grass is clipped down. Mm -hmm. Um, One exception. I think once you've got a big cloud of adult flies, it's like, um, I need a, a better analogy for this, but it's like somebody uh, pull, pulled the gate and here comes the irrigation water, right? You've got a head of water back behind the gate and uh, there's not little you can do to stop it other than <laughs> to open up the drains and try to keep the water from, from increasing on your place. That's what the adulticides do. And, and in reality, that happens in maybe as early as July, often in August, can carry into September, pray for winter. <laughs> it will end. <laughs> so do you suggest in spraying, I'm thinking you said they perch on rafters and they perch on the walls. Would you spray then at night when it's more still and they're all perching? Maybe it doesn't matter, but is there a better time to spray? No, I actually not. Uh, for the emulsiple uh, concentrates or, or water-based formulations, residual insecticides, it doesn't matter what time you apply it. You're not trying to spray directly on the flies, like like a you know in the milk room, you'd use a pyrethrin space spray to try to knock the flies down with the droplets hitting them and killing them right there. That's not what you're doing. It, it's sort of like whitewashing. But bear in mind that stuff is good when it's first sprayed and as dust accumulates, it gets covered up and in turn the insects see less of it, get less of it on their toes. Um, so you may need to renew in a couple of weeks. Pay attention to what's happening to the numbers. I, I joked the other day, life is too short to count flies and maggots, right? But you can watch your animals and see, look at their behaviors and let them tell you if there's too many flies for their comfort. And in turn, maybe you need to come back another application. And you know, there's commercial outfits that'll come in and spray your barns for you, I'm sure. But whether you need to do it on a regular basis is a debatable issue. I've got a follow-up question. We hear a lot about herbicide resistance, Roundup-resistant weeds, and there's all these Palmer amaranth. Uh, Is that a concern with these insecticides for flies? We just don't hear as much about it, maybe because we're not all dairy farmers. But is that the same concern as there might be with herbicides on weeds? Yeah. Actually, the first case of documented dairy fly resistance was in the late 1940s. And it was because the dairy barns started spraying DDT all over, seriously. And in a couple of years after they started using it, you could drop a can on those flies and couldn't kill them. A little exaggeration, you, but you understand what I'm saying. In fact, I think we in entomologists, we brag very often or very inoffen, but in this case, we can claim that we understood resistance before the herbicide guys caught on. So to answer your question, straight and forward, 
uh, if you use the same kind of insecticide, I don't mean brand, I don't mean formulation, I mean the active ingredient with its specific mode of action. If you use that year after year, you will select for resistance and eventually be unable to use it. Our remedy is to rotate. Right? Rotate between classes of insecticides. And in one year, use one. Maybe for economic reasons, it's easier to stick with one compound for the whole summer. If you rotated month by month, that'd be even better, but that's more complicated than most people really need to go to. Eventually, we will select for insecticide resistance, no matter what we use and how we use it. So it's in our interest to preserve the ability to use those things in emergencies and in turn hope that industry comes up with new chemistries that work by ways different than our old ones and we can stay ahead of them through technology. That's an article of faith. What farmers can do is say, okay, I don't really need to use this material or I can switch to material B and be able to use A next year. Rotation. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does to me. Okay, Dr. Moon, we have some resources on our website, some that you have recommended. But what suggestion do you have for dairy producers who are developing their fly control strategies? You know, is there a publication or a website? You mentioned a, a veterinary entomology website. Give us your top two suggestions there. I got to go to two. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, um, the veterinary entomology site, uh, which I think is now being managed by Penn State University, it has reams of background information. Producers can chat with experts. And there's a great big database that lists the different compounds, commercial products that are available state by state. Understand where, whatever state you're in, you must legally comply with the state's regulations, which means you can't use a North Dakota insecticide in Kansas if it isn't registered for use in Kansas. So that website has lots of background information on the insects themselves and what they're doing, and then resources to deal with them. Um, the other thing is to talk with your neighbors. Um, how, how are your flies this year? How's it going? Sort of stay plugged into what other people are doing. Oh, and of course, Fred, I can't ignore extension agents. They know what's going on. <laughs> you got to talk to your extension agents. Okay, that was three. Sorry. <laughs> nope, that worked out perfect. Okay. Uh, Jim, any final comments you want to include? No, I think it just behooves everybody to kind of think about their fly control strategy, because I think, I would guess, Fred, you get the same calls I get. It's probably in uh, August, end of July and beginning of August. Man, I've got so many flies. What do I do now? And I think Roger did a really nice job of saying we need to be thinking about that now, you know, kind of May to June. And what can we do to prevent that inevitable period of time when we are going to have a lot of flies? So I would just encourage everyone to start thinking about fly control now, even though when you go outside, you probably don't see many flies. You just finished shoveling. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Very good. Well, Dr. Moon, thank you very much for being part of our podcast and shedding some light on these fly control strategies. And thank you to the audience for joining us on this episode of the I-29 Moo You Dairy Podcast. Be sure to check the episode notes for links to additional resources on this topic, as well as information from our sponsors. I-29 MooU is an equal opportunity provider. For the full non-discrimination statement or accommodation inquiries, go to extension.iastate.edu forward slash diversity forward slash ext.